Hi everyone, it's Guillaume from Startup Basecamp. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. During the show, you will have the opportunity to meet the best climate tech founders, investors, and experts from both Silicon Valley and around the globe. They will share with you their stories and personal journeys into this growing and exciting industry, giving you some insight into the ecosystems that help you to take part in the fight against climate change and benefit from the opportunities it can represent podcast is divided in two small interviews. During the first part, you will get to know our speakers, their perspectives on the climate crisis and how climate tech is changing the game. Second part of the discussion will be for members of our community who will learn the speaker's secret sauce on how to and share with you their unique expertise on topics such as fundraising, management, strategy and so on to help you to become a better leader in your field. So before we start, I would like to quickly share what we are doing at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech founders in accessing resources and gaining visibility with investors they seek. Our initiatives include a membership-based community platform offering access to a dedicated Slack group with a growing number of founders, experts and investors from around the world and a series of exclusive content such as interviews, weekly job listings, events, and our quarterly online pitch of night opportunity. But more than a place where you can learn, exchange, and grow, we are building a matchmaking service to facilitate connections between our members and top investors and experts in the field. And soon, alongside with other top investors, we will be launching a small fund to co-invest in the growth and acceleration of our members. Finally, all of this is possible because of your support and donations. We are a small self-funded team and we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. So please share one episode with a friend and subscribe to the channels. As an added bonus, we will plant a tree for each of our subscribers each time we reach 1,000 new fans or donors. Do not hesitate to connect with me via social media or email guillaume at Startup Basecamp. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope to get in touch with you soon. And now, let's go for the show. Hi, everyone. In today's episode, we are speaking with Itamar Weisman, partner and head of climate investments at First Time VC, one of the key players of the climate tech landscape in Israel. Mark's career began in non-profit activism with Greenpeace and political campaigning, but a few years ago he made the shift towards climate and came in to lead Climate Tech at First Time VC. He now also runs a non-profit publishing company to promote sustainable thinking in Hebrew. I was excited to have Itamar on the show and to learn from his extensive knowledge of the climate tech ecosystem in Israel. It was particularly interesting to learn what advantages he thinks Israel brings to the table in terms of the global ecosystem and why Israel is such a leader in food tech transportation and mobility. Above all, Itamar provided an interesting glimpse of how he arrived at leading climate tech at First Time VC and what his journey looked like along the way, peppered with books, recommendations, and the seminal studies he learned from that informed his thinking. In this episode, Itamar expands on his drive to protect humanity from itself. In doing so, he explains how he joined First MVC, how he partners with founders, and how he measures impact versus greenwashing in order to ensure that his fund truly contributes to the climate efforts. Most importantly, he explains how he maintains his optimism that we can solve climate change despite the challenges and how he avoids feeling demoralized about it. In the second part of the show, Itamar gives a run-through of what he looks for in the companies he invests in. Itamar is a self-professed podcast and book enthusiast, so he also gives an extensive list of podcasts and books that have been useful to him in understanding the climate tech space. Hitamar, welcome to the show. Hi, Tamar, welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here again with us. Uh, last week, you were part of our, the jury of our sixth quarterly climate tech pitch competition, and it was a success. And thanks so much for, for coming with us. 
So today, I believe uh, it's going to be a great opportunity to hear your story and get up to speed uh, on what you guys are looking at with First Time VC. So welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So before me. we start, you're welcome. So before we start, as usual, uh, can you give us a 30 second uh, introduction about First Time VC? Yeah, sure. So First Time VC is an investment group that uh, has been around in Israel for over a dozen years. We started as a government-backed incubator investing in Israeli entrepreneurs. Uh, we've backed uh, many uh, successful ventures and unicorns. Uh, it was a generalist VC with one and two funds in 2014 and 2017. But in 2021, I joined to lead a new climate tech fund uh, investing in sustainable ventures. We launched a 100 million dollar fund we already invested in six companies four in climate two in health i'm heading our climate uh, uh, um, uh, vertical um, we really uh, invest in great entrepreneurs we support israeli entrepreneurs and we're trying to build an ecosystem here uh, that helps decarbonize our economy so we invest in ai uh, for renewables in circular and clean economy and carbon removal um, in uh, precision agriculture um, and a variety of technology that could help us deal with the climate crisis. I think that supporting innovative companies is going to be key to solving this challenge, which is uh, probably the biggest challenge humanity has ever faced. Uh, so that's what we're about. So before we uh, we, we we go deeper into uh, first time VC and uh, and dig a little bit little bit deeper into the Israeli climate tech ecosystem, let's start from from the top. Can you tell us a bit more about your, your personal story, background? What are you passionate about? What do you do besides working on supporting and investing uh, in founders? What makes you feel inspired or like your your best self? As I always ask, who is it, Amar? Yeah. Uh, who is it tomorrow is a question I ask every day. So it depends on the time of day and uh, um, uh, that you ask me on my question, on that question. Um, but I can say that I've always tried to um, create change. Um, I always think that I was not satisfied by the world that adults gave us. Uh, I'm 30. I'm a millennial. Uh, I was born and raised in Tel Aviv. It's a city that really changed in my lifetime. It was kind of like this... Uh, weird niche of a place that no one uh, uh, really cared about in the world and in my lifetime it became one of the giant hubs of technology in the world. We're talking about a country that is really a startup nation and it really changed in my lifetime. Everything here changed. The lifestyle, the real estate, uh, the politics, the culture, uh, urban life, politics, finance and I think what uh, um, really defines my life that I want to dedicate my time and my energy on this planet to change how we live, how we plan our economy, how we design our society, uh, how we manage uh, our politicians, and how we work together as a community. So I started off uh, by, by uh, being a volunteer at Israel's Green Party. Uh, this is 2006, I was 14. Um, then I went uh, to do a BA before uh, I was 18. I, I started my BA when I was 15. Um, right uh, when I uh, finished high school at 15. Um, I went on to work for an Israeli parliament member at the environmental lobby. Uh, I was an assistant at the environmental lobby here at, at the Israeli parliament. And then I went on for two years to work for Greenpeace International as a campaigner. This was 2010-11. It wasn't called climate. It was called uh, global warming. And we worked on, uh, back then it was the Copenhagen COP. Uh, where it was a dramatic moment with the Obama administration. It was really a, a huge global failure back then to reach a global agreement. Um, it took uh, six more years to reach the Paris Agreement that was more hopeful and, and more aggressive. Um, then I went on to become a journalist. Then I started a, a huge NGO, a nonprofit called V15, trying to do a turnout the vote here in Israel to prevent Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, from winning. We raised four and a half million dollars, had 300 people on our staff, 15,000 volunteers on election day. It was the largest non-profit uh, uh, non and grassroots organization in Israel. I had a, a lot of uh, media attention and uh, from that moment on, moment on I, I knew that I want to build large 
uh, organizations. Um, I dedicated uh, uh, a lot of years to study and understand what I'm going to do in climate. I was poached by a VC by first time to start a climate fund. And at the same time, I started Radical Publishing. It's a nonprofit publishing house here in Hebrew, bringing climate books and public optimistic thought for solutions and policies here in Israel. Um, Israel is way behind Europe and a lot of other countries in the West in terms of sustainable thinking. We published David Attenborough's book, A Life on Our Planet. Next up is Less is More by Jason Hickel on the degrowth movement. After that, we have Kate Rayworth, Donut Economics. We're also trying to bring her here to Israel. We have Tichnat Han, Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet, Rotcher Brechman, Utopia for Realists. So we're trying to build a new uh, a culture of climate optimism and how we can build a better society as well as preventing the, 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 the damages that the climate crisis is going to build. Um, so I always try to combine um, public mobilization but also entrepreneurship um, and I think that uh, my work at the fund helps me achieve that. Obviously we all play a tiny tiny role in uh, um, you know mobilizing people and money and tech towards the climate crisis. Um, so I'm trying to do my small share. Uh, but I think we're only going to be successful not if I'm successful. I don't think I matter at all. I think we're going to be successful if we work together as a community, as a global community. And I think my role is just to make sure that more and more people take part in this community. So I'm really glad to be here and share my story on this podcast. Thank you so much. So out of uh, all of those uh, impressive experience, uh, because I mean, you're still like uh, 30 and like uh, for, for, for some people uh, having having so many like successful experience like yours uh, uh, is probably like, uh, I would say, uncommon. But out of all of them, like, do you have like one of the two experiences that uh, in a way uh, give you an edge uh, to join the firm uh, that you could like, you know, define as such? So I was the first uh, investors, you know. Yeah. So I think two experiences led me to technology. One in 2014, when I was uh, pretty young, I joined. I was uh, asked to join uh, Mindspace, which is one of the largest uh, co-working spaces in the world now. Back then, it was just one space here in Tel Aviv to join as a VP marketing. And then I started meeting great entrepreneurs who were looking for real estate, co-working real estate. So I met. 50 entrepreneurs a month and I got to see how they work and I saw how ambitious they were how you know um, almost like magicians these guys have this amazing vision and against all odds they try to manifest it um, sometimes they have some sad stories about companies that shut down and people who lost their money but sometimes you have success stories about people who really build great things and interesting products and interesting markets and helped create interesting jobs and uh, unique brands and that really attracted me so after that I, I started my own company um, and I raised uh, a bunch of uh, money from VCs so I got to be on the other side of the table trying to pitch again and again and again and again until I could really do my pitch when you wake me up at 3 a.m. like that you know on, on, uh, on call um, and I remember um, having to go through uh, dozens of meetings with investors private investors, institutional, any type of investor and see how they react, understand what I can do to improve my odds. And it was really um, an asset for me when I joined the fund, being able to understand the entrepreneur lifestyle, the entrepreneur mindset, the entrepreneur um, challenge and, and kind of a route to, to their destination. Um, and I hope that it also helps me resonate with founders that I work with now because I really hope that I get them. Um, and I try to be a supportive person in their own journey and not to take up too much space. Uh, not taking too much space is always, uh, you know, sometimes uh, the little challenges that uh, investors versus founders uh, can, can, can have. But uh, out of, uh, you know, and you mentioned that uh, prior to that, you really like this involvement into the uh, uh, sustainability and sustainability thinking and, uh, and you know, in a way, uh, climate and, and uh, uh, ecosystem in itself. But can you, you know, recall maybe out of that uh, journey from, uh, you know, the school to uh, to know where you are, uh, any moment that you could define as this haha moment that uh, 
make you think like, okay, no, I really want to uh, dedicate uh, all of my time and energy in this uh, uh, climate tech uh, ecosystem. Yeah, I actually have a really clear moment. It was 2019 and I read the book, The Uninhabitable, I think it was the book or was the article? Because I read both, but I think it was first the article, The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells on New York Magazine. It then turned into a full book, but I think in 2019, early 2019, the article came out. It was a very dramatic article. This was kind of trying to lay out a vision of a world with three degree warming where climate crisis is not here, but it's already at its peak. And what we're going to experience, droughts, food insecurity, refugees, um, you know, uh, um, degraded land, um, uninhabitable areas, um, a culture and civilization that is crashing down. And um, it really hit me at my core. Um, and I think it led for a long time of climate depression and anxiety. Um, I really had a bad case of climate depression. Um, it was before COVID, a year or so before COVID. And I really remember that I didn't know what I'm going to do with that. And um, I, I, I went through a, large, a long process of understanding that the world we grew up, we grew up in in the 90s does no, does no longer exist. The world we were so-called promised when we grew up uh, is a fiction. And that we need to understand what will happen in the 21st century. The 21st century is going to be a story of whether humanity uh, is its own worst enemy or is its biggest redeemer. And um, I had to understand whether what, what, what type of role I, want, I wanted in that story, whether I'm going to be my own worst enemy and fall into climate anxiety and depression, or I'm going to be part of a story of a new civilization that leads to a more sustainable world where we don't just you know, uh, overconsume, uh, overgrow, uh, mismanage our resources, and uh, compete uh, at, uh, uh, at each other for everything. Um, and I think that was the pivotal moment for me. Um, and I really remember that moment in time. Uh, it was not long ago, three and a half years. Yeah. So, and thanks for sharing uh, all of uh, those uh, more, more intimate uh, moments and uh, part of your of your journey. So let, let's take a zoom out now and um, a step back at the uh, Israelian climate ecosystem. Um, if you could maybe like give us like an overview of the, the landscape today, what are the, the fundamentals that make the, the climate clean tech market more relevant than ever today? Or are we in a bubble type of, of market? And maybe if you can tell us, you know, which sectors uh, from the, the traditional industry are the most impacted and in need for, you know, change uh, for their survival. And I guess even more in this actual context of, you know, post-COVID economy with high inflation and uh, international tension uh, with the ongoing war in, the, in Ukraine. I think that the climate crisis is going to be relevant for any ongoing event. Um, I think that we're experiencing a paradigm shift and that this is going to impact everything that will happen. We can now kind of like um, review every global event in these new climate lens, whether it's the war in Ukraine that impacts Germany's energy policy and impacts crop uh, prices uh, or impacts uh, how we collaborate uh, globally or how um, sentiments uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, fear or hope run in the world. Um, uh, also in terms of um, just emissions, right? The war in Ukraine just leads to a lot of emissions. Every military conflict leads to a lot of emissions. Um, so I think every event that now happens will be analyzed through these climate lenses. Um, and I think that's a really critical um, um, point to understand that everything that happens now we need to uh, analyze from a climate and carbon perspective um, and I think we can really lay it out against everything that happens in the world every global event right we have the upcoming uh, uh, elections here in Israel it was just called that we're gonna have elections again for the fifth time in three and a half years our unstable political system that will be right around COP 27 in Sharm el-Sheikh which is our neighboring country 
then that will really impact Israel's policy towards the coming COP. But that's a small case. Israel's a small country. The 2022 elections in the U.S., the midterm elections, are going to have dramatic impact over American policy um, in the U.S. Uh, in terms of climate and energy management and energy transition. Um, same thing with the Macron-Le Pen election uh, that was just in France. Um, same thing um, for any type of global event. Um, and I think that the most important thing, and I'm not sure this is really, a, uh, um, uh, maybe it's an indirect reply to your question, but I think we need to apply this climate thinking over everything. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And, uh, but, but I think that that's really like, like the overall context. Uh, and I would like to, if you can dive a little bit more into the specific, uh, you know, case and ecosystem in, uh, in Israel, try to understand it's like, you know, what is the, the, the drivers uh, now inside of the, the, the ecosystem uh, that you can actually see? Is it really like something that uh, you guys are pioneering it on it or there is like other actors moving? Uh, how is the, uh, the ecosystem uh, moving to, uh, forward right now in yeah. Israel? And uh, how do you see the, 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 con the actual context uh, you know, influencing that ecosystem? So there's 750 companies here in Israel, according to a really great nonprofit called Planetech. Planetech works with the Israeli Innovation uh, Institute, and it's a really great community that provides assistance, research, and community building for the Israeli climate tech ecosystem. So we have, again, almost a thousand companies in agriculture, precision agriculture, in food tech, in mobility, in uh, uh, renewable energy, of course, in circular economy and carbon removal, in uh, a variety of uh, uh, natural carbon sequestration solutions. Um, there's a really long list of verticals where you'd see Israeli companies. I think that climate tech as a whole globally is still in its early stages. So it's the same thing here in Israel. Um, over $2 billion was invested in Israel in 2021, and I think it's going to dramatically increase in climate tech, of course. It's going to dramatically increase in the coming year. About 7% of all VC money was invested in climate tech. Hopefully, it will grow for 25%, in my opinion, by the end of the decade. Um, Israel is a real tech uh, powerhouse, and I think that the Israeli talent pool uh, can and will be directed towards climate challenges. Right now, we're seeing a lot of Israeli uh, companies being built in the food tech space um, for a variety of reasons, but because of our great scientific and academic research um, that we have here in Israel uh, that leads to interesting solutions in alternative proteins. And on the other side, we're seeing a lot of public transportation solutions in mobility. So it's a really interesting um, story. In agriculture, Israel has a, a huge challenge since its inception. 60% um, of the country is a desert, I believe, um, and we have a lot of irrigation uh, challenges here. So a lot of great companies like Netafim uh, was built out of Israel, um, and we're seeing that heritage uh, being merged today with uh, um, uh, new entrepreneurs stepping into climate. Sometimes these are experienced entrepreneurs, sometimes these are new entrepreneurs. And I think that Israel is, is positioned to be one of the leading uh, ecosystems in global climate tech. Uh, uh, and it's really interesting to see it develop. I've had the pleasure of seeing this evolve in the last two years. I am not one of the first ones in, but I'm definitely one of the um, hopefully leading persons here in Israel working on this uh, ecosystem. But it's huge. And again, the story is not about first time and the story is not about Itamar. The story is also not about Israel. The story is about whether we are able to shift a paradigm from old school um, neoliberal thought that led us to this crisis or we're going to change our society, our economy, our technology to a more sustainable version, a better version of itself. And I think Israel is definitely a global player in that. So according to you, what, what makes you think that economic growth is compatible with sustainability and reducing you know, global emissions? Uh, we often hear that the only way to go might be degrowth. Yeah. So I think uh, we definitely need to uh, degrow uh, fossil fuel industries. We definitely need to degrow um, um, wasteful cons consumption, 
we need to rethink how we manage resources at scale, how we design systems, but we dramatically need to grow renewable energies. We dramatically need to grow uh, and, and, and support solutions that help us run a more circular economy. Waste to energy, for example. These are great solutions that could be a a win-win-win. They can help us reduce emissions from food waste, for example, and also increase uh, 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 recycled or upcycled material usage. Um, I think that there's a variety of different technologies that we need to scale. So that means um, that we do need to grow, but in certain areas of our economy. In many areas of our economy, we need to absorb a, we need to uh, uh, um, um, implement a degrowth approach. Um, also, um, we should start um, um, easing on how we uh, uh, measure our economy. Perhaps GDP, um, not perhaps, definitely GDP is not a good measure of our economy. We need to measure well-being, we need to measure carbon, we need to measure uh, happiness, we need to measure sustainability in a variety of ways. Um, there's a really great book by Jason Hickel that I recommend that we're publishing here in Hebrew called Less is More, How Degrowth Can Change the World. Um, and it really opened my eyes on what we can do. So obviously green green and climate growth and climate tech growth is a tool but it's not the most important thing we can do. In general I think the climate crisis is so big that this is an all hands on deck sort of situation and a uh, multiple shots at goal sort of situation where we need to do a lot of things together. Tech is not going to save us. It's just one thing we need to do. I think it's a good segue for my uh, my last question, uh, you know, concluding this uh, this first part of the of the interview. So, with the goal in mind to keep, you know, the 1.5, and some people are saying maybe like it's going to be two degrees uh, overall temperature increase by 2050. I mean, what is according to you the proportion of tech uh, versus nature-based solution that needs to be implemented, and and why do you believe it is important to push both types of solution or, or not? Uh, what are the, the major constraints that you have uh, maybe identified, you know? So again, I think this goes back to the um, multiple shots and go at goal. If we're really talking about the worst case scenarios of the climate crisis, we need to do everything we can, everything. Um, and we can't just build uh, our strategy on one outlook, one solution, one paradigm. Um, so I believe that we should, you know, develop uh, many uh, solutions and people should work on a variety of solutions. Um, on a more philosophical level, I'm really interested in natural mimicry. I think that nature is uh, our ally um, and we should understand how we can uh, learn from it and how we can mimic it rather than replace it or rather than try to outsmart it. Um, and that's kind of like a philosophy, you know, I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm a big believer in the Gaia hypothesis, if you know, uh, by Professor James Lovelock and Professor Lynn Margolis. Um, the understanding that Earth is an ecosystem that works together, all of its organisms, all of its parts are working together to balance it and we have shifted and we have distorted the balance on this planet and we need to return balance. Returning balance is going to happen by understanding nature and mimicking it as much as we can. So natural carbon uh, solutions, natural carbon removal uh, is going to be key in my opinion. And I, listen, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a specialist of anything. I'm a curious person trying to dedicate my energy in understanding how these things work. But there are much smarter people than I am. Um, and I try to read them and quote them. Um, and that's what, what I believe in. So let's go into the, the specific of uh, First Time VC. Can you tell us a bit more about like the, the story, the genesis of it? I mean, what was the initial gap that, uh, you know, you and they saw together that led to the, the thesis behind uh, First Time VC? You know, when, when you launch a new fund, you look for a story that's going to be successful, not tomorrow, but in 10 years from now because you're building a company that's supposed to be scaled dramatically in 10 years from now. So when we started to, uh, to work on this fund a year and a half ago, um, we were looking for a story that is going to last 10 years from now. And the only story that I believe is going to last 10 years from now is the climate story. And I think once I understood that and, and explained that to our partners and team, everyone came on board immediately. 
Um, and we all shared articles and videos and books and learned together. Um, and I think that the, there's been massive uh, progress um, happening in the last year, year and a half in tech, in finance, in politics, in policy that allowed them to feel more comfortable with our decision. Going from a generalist fund to a sustainable tech fund um, was a big move. Um, but I can tell you that was done pretty smoothly. And um, I don't think anyone from the fund think that they're huge altruists. I think they understand that this is a huge financial opportunity. This is a strategic decision uh, that uh, can be backed uh, clearly by trends and uh, uh, in our strategy. Um, and I think that there is also clear indication that we're on the right path. Um, that's how I see it, at least. So what do you offer to uh, founders you invest in? Uh, and what are the challenges that uh, you see that are specific to them? It's a good question. Wow. Um, I think that um, great founders understand how to build a vision, design a vision, and share it with their audiences in a way that is compelling and attractive. And that is key. Because that's how you build your team. That's how you raise money. That's how you um, entice customers. That's how you create momentum and traction. And I think that the um, advantages of being in climate is that you're automatically in a space that gives you this vision, this grand vision of a society or of a problem that you're trying to solve. Whether it's in ag tech or whether it's in uh, um, energy, um, there's a huge story to be told here. And I think that's a huge advantage. And I think my, um, you know, the, the best tip I can give to entrepreneurs is to use that. Use your story, use the climate story to um, bring in the best team members that you can. Steal team members from huge corporations. Bring the best and brightest. I think that, you know, in 60 years ago, John F. Kennedy said that uh, he's going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And the reason it was successful is because of three major things. One, he laid out a huge vision, putting a man on the moon by the end of the decade, seven years. Two, he brought massive funding to NASA. 5% of the U.S. GDP in 1966 was, was dedicated to the, to the space program. It's insane. 5% of the entire GDP of America. And third... They made every child in America dream of becoming an astronaut. So we need children to dream of being planet savers. We need to move, mobilize massive, massive funding. And we need to um, design a grand, a grand vision of not going to another planet, but saving this planet instead. So I think if we combine these three things, entrepreneurs can raise a lot of money, can build great teams, and could scale their uh, companies. And that's how I see it. That's the best thing that founders uh, can harness in this, in this uh, vertical. So in terms of support, like with, uh, with First Time, what are the specific support that you offer to, uh, to founders that you invest in? Do you have any, like, uh, do you, like, are you hands-on with them or you try to, as you mentioned, find this right balance? It varies. Not being overwhelmed. <laughs> It's a, it's, a, it's a question we were asked constantly because uh, um, I think we're in a competitive um, uh, funding situation where uh, great founders um, can receive um, um, different um, um, proposals from a variety of funds and there's a lot of competition between funds. So funds are trying to provide more and more assistance and support. But I can tell you that it really depends on the company. Sometimes we are just there, there to support, there to assist, there to provide feedback. Um, and sometimes we're the one in one of my com one of our companies. Uh, my partner is the chairman of the company. He brought in a new CEO when they expanded abroad. Um, he helped them raise further funding. Another partner helps close a, a Series B deal with a large institutional. Um, and so sometimes I help with marketing, storytelling, vision. Um, um, I, I was just working through a, a deck for the next round of one of the companies we've invested in. So it really, it really varies. We also brought in 
uh, ESG implementation and, and carbon man uh, measurement for all of our companies, which we've already uh, implemented in two companies and now we're doing it for the rest of our portfolio. Um, we had an event for all of our CEOs and C-level managers last week combined with another fund. So we try to do a lot of things. Uh, we try to keep it fun. We try to keep it interesting. Um, we try to not waste time for anyone. Um, but it really varies between companies and between the situation in each company. Some companies are more um, have more challenges than others, you know. Um, so I think uh, uh, it really depends. Um, but that's one of the best parts of my work. I get to work with really brilliant people and learn from them. So speaking about sourcing, like how do you source those uh, incredible founders? I mean, who and maybe who should come to, to pitch you? Uh, can you give us maybe uh, one example out of the previous uh, investment that you, uh, that you did and what uh, in a way makes uh, them special? Yeah. So first of all, on a technical level, we invest two to eight million dollar checks at a 10 to 15 million dollar valuation at a post seed to series A rounds. We like to see early revenues, talking about half a million to two million revenues, depending on the business model and the margins. Um, and, and we invest only in Israeli entrepreneurs. So I'm not sure that the listeners of this podcast, uh, I'm going to say Shalom Bivrit, uh, hello in Hebrew to anyone uh, from Israel listening in, but uh, we only invest in Israeli entrepreneurs because we're an Israeli based fund. And, um, you know, uh, one of my partners always says that we're not a real estate fund, we have nothing. Uh, accept people that we support, our founders. So if they run away, or if we have a problem with them, or on, or, or on, on the other side of the aisle, whether we need to support them or take pride in them, they are just people. Um, and I think the fact that we're investing in Israel helps us feel more at home, more secure, literally. Um, so that's why we invest in Israeli entrepreneurs. And also there is a specific market here that has specific needs, and we hope that we can support its needs. Also, we would just have endless FOMO if we would have uh, no geographic limits. I'm seeing amazing companies all over the world. And I'm seeing British companies, American companies, French companies, German companies. Every time I say, wow, I wish they were in Israel, I would love to support these guys. They're doing something amazing. Um, so next that's a more technical... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I was Sorry? saying, like, next time, send them, uh, send them uh, our way. Happy to, uh, to have a look. I will. Uh, and redirect them. I will. I will. There's so many great... <laughs> There's so many great companies out of Europe, man, really, um, I'm, I'm really excited at what's happening in Europe. Um, it's really, really unique. Um, but, uh, um, you know, um, every company that we've invested in was company we reached out to. Um, it doesn't mean that we look down on companies that apply at our website or companies that reach out to us or, 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 or find us at LinkedIn. I try to be very accessible. I try to reply very fast. We have a great investment team that replies uh, diligently. Um, and we try to take everyone seriously. Um, but, you know, it's tough to say, but 98% of people who apply, we have to say no, because we do five to six investments a year. And imagine that if you see three to 500 deals a year, this is what happens. You say yes to one or 2%. Um, and it's a tragic place to be at because I want to be the great guy who says yes to everyone, but actually I have to be the shitty guy that says no to everyone. Um, when I say no, I try to be at least transparent or clear. Sometimes it's too early, sometimes it's too late, sometimes it's not relevant, sometimes there's no fit, sometimes um, it's not the right timing, sometimes we're, uh, in, uh, we've invested in a competitor. It really depends. Um, but I do uh, implore any entrepreneurs who want to talk to me, want to discuss who I can help with, what I can invest in, who I can do anything for him. I would love to talk. I try to reply. I get a, um, bombarded recently with a lot of uh, uh, inquiries. So I'm trying to find better ways of managing my time. Um, as you saw last week, Guillaume, sometimes I'm, I'm messing up my schedule. Um, but I try, I try to do my best and I'm always learning and improving and sometimes I make mistakes. Okay. So speaking about sectors, like, uh, which sectors are the most promising for you today in terms of, uh, what I call impact cash return or ICR, I mean, meaning building like impactful companies while creating highly profitable business. Do you see any underdogs or subsectors area that you are really excited about? I'm really excited about waste to energy. 
but you, you caught me on a specific time because I'm looking into a company in that space. Um, so um, um, waste to energy is really, really interesting um, in terms of, of business models, in terms of returns, in terms of stability, in terms of cash flow, uh, in terms of uh, carbon removal, in terms of uh, methane removal, in terms of um, um, sustainable design for our societies, for our waste management systems, for our material sourcing. There's a bunch of reasons and it's just cool, man. I get to see really cool hardware. Um, you know, one of the fun stuff about climate is that it's physical. We can, in most cases, we invest in software companies or software and hardware companies. But, you know, seeing a huge drone that takes care of 60 wind turbines or seeing um, vertical aeroponics systems that are three meter high or going to see this amazing fermentation um, um, depot is really, really cool. I really like that. Um, it kind of it, it kind of pushes you back to when you were a kid uh, playing with uh, Playmobil and Legos, um, designing big systems and looking at it. This is a whole new world for me. Um, so I'm really psyched about every time I go see uh, a, a new company and check their hardware. Exciting and uh, it's true. And and it's interesting that you uh, that you mentioned West Energy. Where I think the the podcast that we're releasing this week. Uh, uh, it's actually an Israeli slash American company and uh, right on the on the sector. So uh, you should uh, you should have a, 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 a listening at least to uh, to it a, a little bit. Um, out of all the, the pitches you hear, uh, in your opinion, which are the solution that you you know you believe makes no sense whatsoever and sounds like more like waste of time and, and resource or even like greenwashing? Do you have a, maybe a uh, an example of like uh, you know things that you uh, people like labeled as, as climate tech and should maybe not or, or should just like I'm really <laughs> afraid but no no need to name any anyone <laughs> if you don't want to be mean sure i'm really afraid of climate engineering i saw a bunch of companies trying to do a bunch of things and and that was like this is the thinking that got us into this place um you are not gods. Be careful what you do. Um, and I talked about natural mimicry um, 15, 20 minutes ago. And I think that we need to think when we, even if we do climate engineering, we need to do that. We do it uh, in natural ways. Um, sometimes I see really smart, unbelievably smart people uh, doing these crazy things. Um, but, you know, I also learned that. Um, I, um, I always need to investigate before I reply and before I judge and evaluate. Um, and um, even when I see um, bizarrely looking um, climate engineering solutions, I try to pick, someone brain, pick someone's brain and see whether my instinct was correct. But yeah, I think that, um, I think that we need to focus on mitigate, mitigating the crisis um, rather than finding a Daus ex machina. Um, you know what I mean? I know what you mean, and I think uh, it can be very, very scary. And uh, you absolutely don't know what would be the, the outcome of this kind of like uh, large-scale experiences that can uh, turn us even in a worse position. So, in terms of impact, um, how do you guys measure impact? I mean, in comparison to other funds, you don't mention any specific uh, criteria of. Uh, uh, gigaton of like greenhouse gas uh, removed by uh, by 2030 or 2050. Do you have any specific uh, process frameworks? Or do you rely on maybe scientists or experts yeah. uh, to validate the tech and, and potential impact? Yeah. So in most companies, we already see that they include it in their own decks and presentations in data room, which is really great. I saw it evolve over time. They bring in sustainable advisors or climate counter uh, accounting. Etc. We're now working with two uh, uh, agencies to do two things. One, to develop our diligence process in terms of ESG and carbon analysis, and two, uh, to um, better analyze our existing portfolio companies. So we already started the process. We're kind of like two thirds of our way done, um, and the results are really interesting. Um, so we, yeah, we want to take upon ourselves to do um, uh, like similar to public uh, regulation, even though these are private companies, um, and even extend uh, public regulation. 
So what's next for, for some VC? Um, we have two plus years um, to complete uh, our, um, our first round of investments. Um, these are 15 companies, 12 to 15 companies, depending on check sizes, that we're going to deploy. We already did five. Now we're on our way to six. Um, and then we have uh, more time to support our existing portfolio and perhaps think about the future. Right now, I'm totally into what I'm doing right now, living in the moment as much as I can, um, trying to focus on our work. Um, and, you know, um, this ride is really great because it gets me to talk to people like you from all over the world. Um, and I think it's really um, a unique uh, perspective and pleasure that I have to talk to people about what we can do to to change our society for the better and um, I'm really um, happy that that's what I do uh, every day um, I'm sure you have that feeling too right exactly I mean it's uh, incredible I was speaking for, with someone from Australia this morning uh, you're based in Israel today I'm based in Milan for now speaking with people in the US later yeah it's just uh, incredible and everybody like yeah. you know pushing the, the ball towards a, a better and cleaner cleaner world and uh, really putting time and effort on that. And uh, it's very exciting. So my last question on the, this first part of the interview for you, I mean, what is your personal view on the, the climate crisis? Are we doomed? Uh, what would you say to, to people who feel demoralized, you know, by all of those visible consequences yeah. that we see today already? If When I feel demoralized, I go out and celebrate... Um, our, our natural world. I go out for a swim in the Mediterranean. I go out for a walk in the Galilee. Um, I go spend a night at the desert. Uh, I try to remind myself that there is something worth protecting and that there's something worth saving. Um, and that really helps. Um, also, it's proven that spending time in nature helps us reduce anxiety. I think there's a lot of anxiety out there because of the technology, the shitty technology that we developed in social media, and our uh, digital phones um, and the internet. I remember a more joyful internet before it was so centralized into Facebook and Google and etc. Um, I remember a more decentralized web when I was a kid uh, where I would spend my time on bizarre forums in the 90s. Um, so, so I do understand that there's a lot of demoralization on the climate side, on the tech side, on the democratic side, on the inequality side. The world is basically saying, guys, we're screwed. Um, and the way to get out of that thinking is to say, I'm going to do everything I can not to demoralize myself. Um, and it's a challenge. I have some bad days. I have mostly good days. I have mostly good days because I remind myself that I have a very privileged position. Very, very privileged position. I'm not living in the global south. I'm not going to be the one who's going to be probably a climate refugee in the near future. I do not have, I do not suffer from food insecurity. Um, I, you know, I, I saw that like 60% of Americans, if they have a, a, an emergency, they don't have $450 to spare. Uh, I have $450 to spare. Probably most people that work in climate have $450 to spare, right? It's not a lot of money. Um, and I also, I grew up, you know, in a single parent family and had a, a challenging childhood. Um, and um, I look at myself and, and remind myself that I'm really, really privileged to be here. Um, there's a really nice saying by David Attenborough that we're the first generation to really experience climate change, but the last one to be able to really do something about it. And I think that we are really living, living in a unique point of time and that we need to remind ourselves that, that this point of time, in 30 years from now, we're going to take envy in this point of time. Um, every summer that is getting hotter here in Tel Aviv, and right now it's 30 degrees out here, I remind myself that this is the coolest summer from now on. Every time I get pissed of how hot it is or how tough the weather is getting here, I remind myself that things are going to be worse. So I, maybe this kind of mindful approach could be helpful for some people. For me, it helps. And when it doesn't, I try other things. And sometimes it's also okay to be anxious and upset, you know? Um, that's also an acceptable feeling. But if you, move, if you move from it and not 
get you don't you know you don't get stuck in that position too much and that's okay so how can the community of uh, investors lps founders experts listening to the show today can uh, can help you um so we're still fundraising for our fund yay a commercial if you want to invest in first time fund please do reach out We did our first closing in November, and we're doing our last closer closing in, in this November. Uh, we already have $50 million dollars committed, and we're uh, looking to complete our funding. And we also now are in uh, very close to announcing another closing. Um, so that's one thing. Another is that if you want to partner, collaborate, do anything together, talk, um, I'm up for it. You can reach me on LinkedIn. I'm Itamar Wiseman. It's pretty easy to find me. Um, and uh, if you have any idea that you want to share, or anything that you're working on that I could be helpful with, um, I'll try to do my best. Uh, sometimes I'm not relevant and not helpful, and I usually try to be honest and just mention that, you know, some people reach out to me in, in places that I have no uh, uh, understanding in, and I try to uh, clear that up. Um, and yeah, I think that um, one of the most important things that we need to do about the climate is learn how we can share ideas, share uh Um, information um, and plan together you know one of the things that you that makes us unique as a species is that we can work together and I think that really differentiated humanity uh, in the tens of thousands of years that civilization has existed and um, I'm really keen on working with other people and doing um, the best I can um, to, to collaborate So any question I should have asked you and I did not for this uh, first part of the interview? You were very thorough. <laughs> you were very thorough. <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think you, you, yeah, I'm not here to give you grades, but uh, you really did a great job and it was great talking to you. Thank you so much, Itama, for uh, your time, your incredible uh, insights. I'm so excited to see, you know, uh, smart, young, ambitious people uh, like you spending time to, uh, to move the, the ball towards a better and cleaner world. So thank you so much for uh, everything that you do. Thank you, Guillaume. I think that uh, um, it's a real pleasure seeing Tech for Climate um, and your work with the competitions and your work with startups. And I think building an ecosystem and reaching out to people and creating friendships is really important. I think we're here to enjoy the ride and not just work To, to get stuff done. Um, so I really appreciate this on a personal level and uh, I am going to tune in for more people that are going to be far more interesting than I am um, uh, ho ho hosted here on this podcast. Hi, it's Guillaume again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. As I said, do not hesitate to share an episode with a friend. Also, if you value the work we do for the climate ecosystem, here is how you can contribute to it. Today, I'm asking for your support and a donation or sponsorship to make the work of our self-funded team more viable. Even a small contribution means a lot to us. In any case, I will invite you to subscribe to our channels and visit our website startupbscamp.org to discover more episodes like this one and get your membership to access all our members' exclusive content. So remember, all of this is possible because of your support and donation. And we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. Let's keep in touch and I hope you will enjoy our next show with us. Thank you.